Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Thanks for coming this morning. Um, my name's Keith Shaw. I'm a professor of politics at Northumbria University, and I have the great pleasure this morning of having a conversation with Michael about his new book, There is a Green Hill, Walking Around Northumbria, Walking Around My Father. And as many of you will guess, this is as much a personal journey for Michael than a, a contemporary journey around the Northeast. I would just like to invite Michael now just to read from the first part of the book and just give you some sense of the book. Uh, thank you, Keith, and, and welcome everybody, and it's nice uh, to see so many people here. Uh, I'm going to read from the very beginning of the very first walk, which was from Holy Island to Bambra, um, and then at the end, I'm going to read the very end of the last walk, which was from Ferry Hill to Durham. Uh, walk one, Holy Island to Bambra. It's seven o'clock on a sunny July morning and I'm looking out to sea. Without a breath of wind, the lights pin sharp. So I can see sea houses to the south, the submarine shape of Inner Farn with its lighthouse for Conning Tower, and the pink battlements of Bambra Castle, my destination for the day. I'm about to go on a good old walk. I sit on the grassy slopes of Lindisfarne Castle, surrounded by flowers of red valerian. Pied wagtails strut on the path below as I hear the mournful peep of a golden plover. The castle, built in the 16th century against Scots incursions and rebuilt around 1900 by the architect Edwin Lutyens, sits atop a fist of the great wind sill, the table-like layer of igneous dolerite that meanders across the northeast from Teesdale to this last outcrop, a hill once called Beblo. In this glorious summer, it's the first green hill of many in a journey encompassing six walks in the richly varied terrain stretching from here to the Tees, 90 miles away. I've visited Holy Island many times, but the purpose today is journalistic inquiry on foot. The great walker writer Laurie Lee reckoned the car passenger races at gutter height, seeing less than a dog in a ditch, whereas walking brings awareness, compels you to slowly tread a landscape, smell its different soils. Indeed. Today I learn something straight away. Ducks appear, gliding on water of deepest blue, the males in striking black and white as if off to a match at St. James's Park. They call out a series of outraged, woo, woo, Woo! Fact, a flush of idas sound just like a convention of Frankie Howard impersonators. <laughs> the route off the island takes me round the Horseshoe Harbour and its upturned boat sheds, first positioned by Lutyens as artful set dressing, and the tiny offshore isle named after a man who lived in this holy place in the, 17th, in the 7th century, Cuthbert. Monk, bishop and hermit, Cuthbert is often regarded as the patron saint of Northeast England and of the Ida too, for he introduced lords to protect Cuddy's duck. After his death, marauding Danes made Lindisfarne a dangerous place and monks bore his decorated oak coffin slowly to safety in Durham, where it became a shrine and remains today in the great Norman cathedral. That's where my journey will end, on another green hill with water around it. If Cuthbert stands at the beginning and end of this long road, with a tide out, I follow a procession of 20 feet wooden poles across the Pilgrim's Causeway, 
I'll be accompanied by another northeasterner of the past, the, first, the person who first brought me to Lindisfarne 50 years ago, my father, Sid Chaplin, novelist and short story writer. In 1951, two important things happened in his life. His youngest child was born, me, and he published the slimmest and least well-known of his books, The Lakes to Tyneside, one of 13 regional guides published by Collins to mark the Festival of Britain. Sid was born in Shildon, County Durham in 1916 and followed his father into the pit. His early work was written between and sometimes during shifts at Dean and Chapter Colliery in Ferry Hill. On Holy Island Sands, the melancholy call of curlews draw the walker to the mainland. The view is ravishing, the soft slopes of the Kylo Hills, the shallow rise of Cheviot beyond, yellowing grain fields on the narrow coastal plain, Berwick to the north and the Scottish hills beyond. A London train arrows south, and beyond the rustle of a warm breeze, a distant boom, waves breaking on the long sands of the Snook, the long tail of Lindisfarne. The causeway is studded with pools, and my feet are soon wet. I should have shed my boots and walked in bare feet like a true pilgrim. The Lakes to Tyneside contains maps, gazetteer, photographs, and tiny vignettes by Thomas Buick, presenting a frame for its heart, a passionate but clear-sighted essay on the writer's home. Just as the Festival of Britain attempted to show how the British people had contributed to civilization, the guide teases out that what we are as a people of the far north, where we have our homes, what we do and make, depends on a thousand peculiarities of soil, minerals and topography, vegetation and water, forms of transport and industry, ways of speech and song, outside intervention and the continuity and accidents of history. Crisscrossing the terrain by train and bus, he never learnt to drive, Sid set out to describe what made the North Country different from the rest of Britain, to discover how it had emerged from 2,000 years of human settlement and what made its people tick. It is deeply informative and a grand read, drawing a portrait of a place that is both distinctive from the outside and coherent within. All of its par parts make the book an endlessly pleasing whole. So, 63 years later, I'm following in his footsteps, sharing a similar impulse to take the measure of the northeast. As I reach the road by the bridge over the silent South Low, I'm walking to discover what changes this land has undergone in my lifetime, re-examining that old distinctiveness and coherence, finding clues to its future in six very different locales, in landscapes rural and urban, learning from locals who know, love and understand them. The hope being that focusing on the specific will reveal something about the general. I'm also hoping to gather rich human stories and discover something fresh about my father's life. But perhaps the most beguiling thing about my journey is that there will always be a green hill. Because we haven't rehearsed these questions, no. you'll not know that I'm going to miss the first one out. <laughs> um, just given, given the, the two books and given the fact that obviously this is a very personal journey for you, Michael, um, how would you see the, the sort of differences between Sid's 1951 book and this one? Well, um, obviously they're driven by the same kind of impulse, but, but they are very different in form in that my dad's book 
um, is written from the point of view of an omniscient observer, a third person. Um, and um, I suspect that that was the house style that was laid down by Collins for all of the books. Um, in my father's archive at the Robinson Library in Newcastle University, there, are some, there is some material relating to this project. And in the first uh, few drafts, there are, for instance, references to interviews that, that he yeah, did. Sure. Um, but they were removed. Um, and so, uh, you know, the voice is, is, is uh, as it were, someone floating above the landscape observing. Um, and there's no first person in it. Um, uh, and there's no direct observation, if you know what I mean. Whereas um, I felt instinctively that that wouldn't work with, with this book, um, because apart from anything else, uh, it is the voice of someone who is trying to find out what has happened to the region yeah. uh, since my father wrote this book. Um, and uh, so it is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, there's, there's a lot of me, me, me mm -hmm. in it, and, and my observations, for better or worse, including the birds, as you heard yes. in, that, in that first piece. Mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously, I, I did set about to talk to a lot of people, as I, as I mentioned in, the, in that introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, on some of the walks, um, I was actually guided by people who undertook mm -hmm. to decide where we went, and then, and then we, you know, obviously we talked, and, and I learnt a lot from those people. It, on other walks, I, I interviewed people en route, as mm -hmm. it were. So, um, so that, you know, absolutely made sense that that comes across as a, as a dialogue and a, and a conversation. So that's the main difference, I think. That would be a shorter answer than Dennis Skinner's answers last it week. It was, right? yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, just a, a follow-on then, just in terms of the six walks, um, could you, you know, how did you choose the particular walks themselves and are there individual themes related to the six walks? Yes. Um, uh, well, first of all, um, what I decided to do was to base uh, what I wrote around a series of walks because it seemed... Well, as I explained, you know, the point about Laurie Lee is when you walk, you learn. Um, and I really love walking. And I really love walking around the northeast, and I've done quite a bit of it. Mm. And, and the book that I wrote about the time was about a, a walk, essentially. So, and, and that seemed to work. So I decided to do a series of walks. And I had an, a, an idea very early on. Um, it just popped into my head that, that, um, that Cuthbert was, was quite an important person in the story of... Um, of the northeast, so I thought, oh well, that, that might be quite nice to start on Holy Island mm. and end up in Durham, which obviously is you know where where this event is being held, and it turns out that it's just across the way from from his last resting place. Um, so so that I, I then had those fixed points. Obviously, I, I decided then, well, where am I going to finish uh, the first walk? Well, it turned out to be Bambra, mm. and it was quite a long old pull, I can tell you on that day. Um, it's quite a way. But it was the most fantastic day. And indeed, the weather on all six days was absolutely brilliant. Mm. So beautiful um, in, in July, high summer and all of that. So, so I, th I then, kind of thinking about how to divvy them all up, I thought, well, there has to be a sort of walk on Tyneside, Wearside and mm. Teesside. Um, and that, that was fairly easily sort of done. Um, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to finish in Durham, wh wh where will I... Well, I start that particular walk, mm. um, and uh, it didn't take me very long to work out that I should start in Ferry Hill, which is uh, 
where my family were living when, when Sid uh, published this book and where I uh, started my life. Um, so, uh, so that was that. And then that, I, I thought that there should be another rural walk and I, I sort of pondered long and hard. I thought about Weirdale. But in the end, I, I went for Coketdale. Um, maybe I should just sort of touch on, on the individual walks and the themes. Yeah. On the first walk in North Northumberland... Um, uh, I, I didn't quite realise this beforehand, but, um, but I very quickly learned from a, a conversation I had with a wonderful uh, um, man called Charles Baker Cresswell, whose family have been in Northumberland since 1180. So he's been around... Well, not, not that he's been around since 1180, but his family have been. And, um, uh, and he's been a farmer in North Northumberland. So I went to talk to him, um, and he told me about his life in the, in the 1950s, working on a farm at a place called Spindleston. And um, I, I was so very struck by two things. Uh, the, the utter harshness of the physical labour that he had to do as a young man. Um, a, a, and also by what he told me about, to a certain extent I knew about this, you know, the, the, the decline of um, the farm labourer, as, as it's called. So on his little farm at Spindleson, uh, there was, you know, there were four men, as they were called, who, who did the physical work, including him. And now his, fa his family own um, land in that area, equivalent to seven times uh, the size of Spindleston, and they run it with three men. Um, so, um, so and, and also I learned on that, uh, that, you know, something else that I, that I knew, but it came with additional force, the, the decline of fishing. Mm -hmm, yes. So on the land, you know, there's huge changes. And, and in, in Bambra, you know, where's the money coming from now? Well, the answer is tourism. Mm. So, so that's one of the things. In Coketdale, I took a cue. Um, well, it's Coketdale, and it starts in the valley of the Alm at, at, uh, near Whittingham and, and ends in Holystone. Um, I took a cue from uh, something that Sid wrote about, which was about um, the, the border reavers and the border ballads and the tradition of song that has come down uh, through that. And, um, and also, so I was interested to look at that and, and, and uh, have the pleasure of knowing Alistair and Liz Anderson, who, who happen to live in that area. And Alistair is uh, a very significant figure in the revival of traditional music in, in this part of the world. So I went to see them. But also I wanted to sort of check out something that Sid said about uh, Northumberland being the last refuge of feudalism. Um, the role of the big uh, families, you know, the Percy's most, obviously the Swinburns, the Ridleys and so on. Uh, and I wanted to know whether they were still around and, and, and actually, surprise, surprise, they are. Yeah. Although their social role is perhaps less important than it used to be. Mm. Um, uh, South Shields, I did a shorter walk. Um, I did a circular walk, sort of encompassing the Tyne and and the, and the coast, the, the beaches, the haven, and so on, with the town's uh, MP, Emma Lewell Buck. Um, and that's very largely about um, something that I already did know quite a lot about, which is the decline of uh, shipbuilding in that particular part of the world, and, and also the changes in them in, in, in the kind of seagoing tradition, uh, South Shields being a great centre um, for sailors. And, and I think... South Tyneside is, without doubt, the most distinctive and different uh, of all of the four Tyneside boroughs. 
um, but is under great pressure now um, because of because of those changes, um, but also because of changes in government policy towards all sorts of things which we could spend the rest of the day discussing, um, yeah, but essentially growing inequality in the struggles. Um, I'll try and get through the others. Um, Sunderland, I did a walk from Penshaw Monument to Seaburn with Paul Callaghan, um, who, amongst other, many other things, was the outgoing, the last chair of One North East, the regional development agency, and his great friend, John Mowbray, who spent many years working in the water industry. Mm. And the theme of that really, well, there were kind of two headlines for me. One was the extent to which the decline of the regionals, region's traditional industries, perhaps more than anywhere else in the Northeast, I say that tentatively, hit Sunderland so hard um, so that now that there is virtually nothing going on um, that employs people, I mean, give and take, obviously, certain things, um, that, that Sid would have recognised in 1951, and the extent to which Sunderland has overcome this yeah. immense structural problem, I, I found that deeply impressive and actually rather moving. Um, and the other thing um, is the syndrome that I came across, which is second city syndrome, you know, which, uh, um, uh, which we can talk about anon. Um, and then in Teesside, I walked from Stockton um, to Middlesbrough with uh, Gordon Bates and Mark Robinson, both incomers, but they've been there a long time. And I was really intrigued that day, the, the sort of um, um, the questions of identity that mm. came out of that. You know, what is what is Teesside, um, and so on. We might return to yeah. that eventually. And then finally, Ferry Hill. Well, I wanted to find out, you know, what Ferry Hill was like now, um, as a uh, as an ex-mining mm. village and town. Um, and so I spent a day and a night there. Um, and then I did, I did the walk from there. And it's a sort of summing up kind of walk. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's probably a rather longer no, answer right. to the one that you, <laughs> you no, were expecting. But um, we got a lot of stuff out of the yeah. way. Though. I suppose one way that you remedied any concern about second city status was to miss out completely the, the first city. Um, yeah. You weren't, yeah. You weren't expecting that, were you? Um, no. No, but I'm glad you pointed... I'm very glad you asked me that question. <laughs> yeah. Because I did make a conscious decision not to write about Newcastle. I, I know you did. Um, and on the grounds that I, I, li I live in Newcastle mm. and I was brought up in Newcastle. And I, I really wanted to discover fresh stuff because yeah. I thought that might be mm. more interesting for me and hopefully more illuminating for everybody else. Mm. And also, I just love South Shields. Uh, yeah. And, I, I, you know... I, um, I adore it, actually, yeah. and uh, I, I, you know, I have profound admiration for its people. And mm. uh, you know, I knew that there was a, mm. a, a good story to tell there, so that's where I went there. And Minchella's ice cream. And Minchella's yeah. ice cream, and and Coleman's fish and chip shop. And Coleman's fish and chip shop. Yeah, right. possibly even in the same day. Right. Uh, <laughs> or at the same time. Uh, possibly. Yeah. Um, moving, moving on, Michael. Because uh, what comes out of the book? is the interrelationship between place, sense of place and the people who live there. Yes. And there's some fantastic sort of, well, I suppose, life stories, narratives about yes. people's lives. Yes. Were there any ones that you thought were particularly interesting or um, you enjoyed? Or? There was just so many. I mean, the, the reason that, um, that I, I sort of went for this strand, I suppose, you know, I am primarily a, a, a sort of dramatist and, and, and storyteller. And so, so I, I'm always intrigued and indeed fascinated by 
the pattern of people's lives, and, 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 and in this case, how they're related to the places in which they've made their homes. Um, but also, I wanted to get a sense of, you know, how, a, you know, a, f a fraction of the population of Northeast have actually spent le their time mm. since 1951. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I, I went to talk to Charles Baker Cresswell about his life uh, on Spindleston Farm mm. in the 1950s. Um, um, I suppose, um, well, uh, just to pick a couple of, of examples, mm. um, I was very struck in Sunderland when I was walking with Paul and John, um, where I suddenly realised, and this is a sort of partly a second city syndrome, that I could actually, in reflecting, we were walking in places that I'd never actually been, um, despite the fact that it was only, it's only 12 miles from my home. And, and I started to reckon up and I thought, well, actually I could probably count on the fingers of two hands the number of times I've actually been in Sunderland in my life, to my shame. Um, but I, I suspect I'm not the only person on Tyneside who, who feels like that. Um, and this is, the, this is part of the issue with second city syndrome, you know, that, that people from Newcastle sort of, you know, not, basically not interested in Sunderland or, or what's happening there and they don't go there. Um, but anyway, I did say to Paul that uh, in, in, in kind of uh, as extenuation or explanation or as an excuse that the first time I went to Sunderland, I think it was in 1963, uh, I, I nearly died. Um, because I was taken... The architecture wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was taken by my brother-in-law with my friend Charlie to uh, uh, um, a cup tie, a replayed cup tie between Sunderland and Manchester United and got embroiled in the most horrendous crush mm. outside the ground. Um, and, um, and, and, and so we got sort of talking about the whole sort of football thing and... and and this is the only point in, the, in this talk where I do talk about football. Um, but this led into a conversation about... Uh, which Paul told me, I was completely amazed, that when Sunderland uh, reached the uh, cup final in 1973, mm -hmm. the Sunderland supporters sang Bladen Races, um, which, I hazard a guess, would not be the case today. Um, and, and also Sunderland people at that time called themselves Geordies. Mm -hmm. um, which is a term that was subsequently, as it were, appropriated or misappropriated mm -hmm. by John Hall when he took over Newcastle United and, and mm -hmm. it became the Geordies team and, you know, the Geordie nation and all, all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but the, 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 point, the ultimate point was that Paul told me this story about that night at Roker Park um, where possibly apocryphal story about um, a man who was kind of swept onto the terraces by the crowd, you know, he couldn't... He, he couldn't avoid going into the ground. And he was an elderly man uh, in his slippers and a dressing gown um, <laughs> ho holding a shovel. And, and he was crying balefully, well, I only popped out for a shovel full of coal. <laughs> uh, so so uh, I, I love that story. Um, I, 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 and I'm very hesitant about telling other people's stories, especially when they're here in the audience, like Paul is. <laughs> Um, oh, no. uh, but I'm going to tell another story, <laughs> or, or possibly invite Alistair Anderson to tell it. Uh, he told me a story about how he first got to play the concertina, the yeah. English concertina, which is his, at which he is an acknowledged, you know, world acknowledged uh, virtuoso. Do you want to tell that story, Alistair, or shall I? Shall I? No. All right. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll read your quote, yeah. if I might, because yeah. I. 
Yeah. You're on a roll. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I wasn't. Um, so, uh, Alistair uh, grew up in Wall's End, um, and one day, as a young person, he was already interested in music, uh, and indeed country dance, because uh, he liked holding on to women, he said. Um, but, but one day he called for his schoolmate, Mel Askew, and he was shown into the front room and got his eye on something in their cabinet, an English concertina made by Wheatstones of London for Harry Boyd's music shop in Newcastle's New Bridge Street, once played by Mel's grandfather. He asked to have a go, and his life was changed. So this is Alistair's quote. I asked Mel's grandma if I could buy it. She was unsure it was so precious to her. As a young woman, she met the man who became her husband at a Newcastle bus stop. He carried a little leather case, and she asked him what it was. He made a living putting metal rims on the wheels of horse-drawn buses, but music was his joy. So the concertina was their love token, but she let me have it because she wanted it to be played. And I did, and I love this phrase, it's the Harley Davidson of concertinas. So responsive, and I'm still playing it today. What? Almost 50 years later. Um, I, can't, I, was so I can't tell, tell you quite why, but I was so touched by that story, but, but, but how his life was changed by this uh, curious accident. Of, uh, so, so, yeah. I mean, just sort of moving on, and obviously there is a question, the world that said captured in 1951, how has that changed now? So, mm. But as an academic, I would love to keep you here for about three hours. But we'll just pick out one issue. I think reading through a bit of identity. Yeah. And there was seemingly a stronger sense of regional identity when Sid was writing. Now, you, the book does capture identity today. Yeah. But it's much more localised, not parochial is the wrong word, but it's a much more localised sense yeah. of identity. Yeah. And there does seem to be, have been a diminution in how we feel as Northeasterners, yeah. as opposed to communities, towns, villages. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that would be fair? Yeah. Um, I would never use the word parochial, by the way. Well, I, I, in all innocence, you used it, but it's a slightly pejorative it term. Is. What I did find, pretty much everywhere I went, uh, but particularly in the smaller places, whether it was Bambra or Holystone or Whittingham um, or, or Ferry Hill, but the bigger places too, was this very strong, almost intense feeling of uh, connection and identity rooted to that particular place. And, and very, in many places, it's not just the way people feel, it's how they act. Mm -hmm. So that they, that they you, you know, I was, I was really buoyed up everywhere, pretty much everywhere I went to see how people didn't just feel this thing, but, but they, they're working so hard to make their particular part of the world a better place to live in. You know, whether it's organising a film club or a history society or, or a town council doing everything it can to make the place look tidy and neat. And, um, and, uh, and I kind of thought, I got a sense somehow that, you know, in the world we live in with globalisation and, you know, endless austerity and all the rest of it, there's maybe a sense that people have, well, we can't actually do that much as citizens of Bambara or wherever to affect the, mi the macro, mm -hmm. but we can do something to make life better in our little part of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I was very struck with it by that. Uh, it, you know, it may well have been the case in 1951. Sid doesn't really talk much about that, but I did get a very strong sense of it, and I, and, and I was quite 
amazed by that. Um, by the same token, I did feel in many places that I went that, that I sensed people didn't have, perhaps as they once did, a very strong sense of being uh, regional people or having a regional identity, being part of the Northeast. And uh, I think this first struck me in Bambra um, uh, when uh, it suddenly struck me at the end of the day's walk that I'd seen the, the Northumbria, the Northumbrian flag, the red and the gold, just everywhere, you know, in, outside sh and shop windows, on the backs of cars, on road signs, on the top of castles and all the rest of it. And I thought that was very interesting, really. And, and, uh, and then I was amazed to discover that the flag of Northumberland, which is actually based on, um, allegedly, the, the colours of the kingdom of Bernicia, which preceded uh, Northumbria. But anyway, this flag was adopted, believe it or not, in 1951. Um, but I think it's, in the last 10 years, I would suggest, it's become more ubiquitous. You, you see it far more. So that's one thing. And then going to the other end of the region, uh, there was this thing where in Stockton and Middlesbrough, uh, there, there is a sort of ongoing issue of, you know, um, first there was Stockton and then there was Middlesbrough and then there was Teesside County and then there was Cleveland County and then that was abolished. Um, and so they're, they're sort of divided again. And, and that there is a sense that in south of the Tees anyway, it, it's kind of quietly drifting south into Yorkshire. And so there was this um, uh, thing recently where the, the, the parish council in Yarm held this referendum to, to, to say that they wanted to get away from Stockton mm -hmm. and take their rateable value with, you, mm -hmm. with them and, and, and join Hambledon, I think it is. Mm -hmm. the, um, and and, and there, there was a vote in favour. I mean, it was a low turnout, but it, it was a vote mm -hmm. in favour. So, so I kind of think... Uh, there is that, and it seems to me that possibly one of the reasons for this is that, you know, when we had the traditional industries of coal and, and, and shipbuilding in particular, well, you know, there were collieries from Scremiston to West Auckland yeah. and, you know, Brampton to uh, South Shields, and there was sh shipbuilding on all three rivers. I'm sure this sort of shared heritage mm. and the way people made their living did have a binding effect. Mm. And I think the, the other factor, just to mention very briefly, is that, of course, over the last 20 years, many of the regional institutions mm. um, have just faded away to some extent, partly because this current government has, a, has abolished many of them, including One North East. Mm. Um, and, of course, to them, the word region has become a dirty word, you know, not to be mentioned. The um, Don't mention the word. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and then the other factors, like, you know, Tyne Tees... Well, nobody really calls it Tyne Tees anymore, and it's a very anonymous sort of little part of ITV. Mm. You know. So, so that, that's my kind of theory anyway, for what, for what it's mm. worth. I suppose just before we invite people to, to ask questions, uh, just to end on a, a sort of more political, small P point. Yeah. You know, the decision on the 18th of September, up further north up there. Uh, actually, that's the sky, that way. Um, the, um, you know... At a time when the northeast's regional structures have gone uh, and we're divided up into Tees Valley in the northeast and there's different sorts of structures, actually after the 18th of September, the issue for the northeast is we will be asked, do you want more powers devolved? But it's a big issue, this. 
what sort of powers, but what level will you devolve them to? Mm. So one of the great ironies for me after the season of September is at a time when we do need a common voice, a shared sense of who we are, what sort of society that we want in the North East, it's actually very difficult mm. to think through what the most appropriate level would be. Mm. Mm. And I, so I, I think one issue, just to, just to leave before we um, invite questions, is um, is there such a thing as the North East? Where is the North yeah. East? Yeah. And are some of the things that bound the region together when Sid was writing, have they just dissolved? Well, I think they, uh, I don't think they've quite dissolved, no. uh, um, but I think I would, I would suggest that they're weaker than, mm. than they used to be. But I, I think one other way of looking at this is to look at it, to look at us the way, in the way that the rest of the country looks at us. And I, I, w I would suggest that people outside this region do see this part of the world as a coherent place. Yeah. I mean, they might think, you know, we're all Geordies, as it were, um, but I, I would certainly think that, that the rest of Britain sees the Northeast uh, as a very coherent and distinctive mm. region, especially when you compare it to somewhere like the East Midlands. Mm. Well, what is the East Midlands? You know, what connects Lincolnshire to mm. Leicestershire? Mm. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Mm. Um, but so I think there is that. Um, and, and I think the other thing, just to bear in mind, is that you know whatever, um, whatever has happened in the recent past, and whatever the political jealousies might be, for instance, between Sunderland and Newcastle, mm -hmm. and, and what Paul Callahan described as balkanisation, which is essentially, as I understand it, communities looking in, you know looking inwards mm -hmm. in a, in a negative way rather than cooperating together. All I would say about that is that. You know, my feeling before I made the journey and, and after it is that, you know, there's, we have more in common yeah. than we have, you know, separate mm. uh, views of it. And, and, you know, just that old saying about, you know, was it Voltaire? Maybe not. Mm. Um, if we cannot hang together, then we will most assuredly hang separately. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> And I think there just has to be, um, I mean, there's a question about whether we really will get that offer, and some people are very uh, pessimistic about mm. whether the Tories really meant it, um, and, and I can understand that. Um, but I, I think something is, is mm. I, I feel personally that, that you know, there is going to be some kind of offer, mm. and, and it, it obviously requires some kind of political leadership, which possibly wasn't around at the time of the failed referendum in 2004. Um, I don't know. You know much more about this well, than I do. But I, I, actually, I think we may have the entire yes vote <laughs> uh, with us today. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, right. Would you like a, like a rest? And we'll... yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, this is where I do either Jonathan or David Dimbleby, which I've always wanted to do. Uh, it would be really good to um, have some comments or questions. Claire, have we got a roving... So please, we've got at least 10 minutes, uh, comments, questions, uh, issues you want to raise, and please, if you just put your, um, just at the back there, thank you, sir. Just like to make two points, I think, first of all, for people outside the region, the northeast is Newcastle, essentially, all right? Mm. That's essentially the truth, I'm afraid. The second point about uh, the um, dilution of the sort of regional cohesion. When Sundland won the cup in the, in the 1930s for the first time, um, the whole of 
the castle council, the mayor and the aldermen, greeted the Sunderland team on the platform at Newcastle Central Station on the way back. So Sunderland's pride was shared by the whole of the North East. Yeah. Yeah. You could Brilliant. never imagine that yeah. happening now. Yeah. Never. Yeah. You'd, have to, you'd have to drug the Newcastle City Council to get them to, <laughs> to celebrate that. Many and to some extent, we'd say... Anyway, sorry? Mm. Um, yeah, very good point. Thanks. Michael, uh, do you want to... Well, well uh, just as a, an aside to that, I mean, I did know people when I was, when, I was, uh, when I was much younger than I am now, when I was growing up. I did know a couple of people who had season tickets for both football clubs. And the, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I, you know, uh, even though I live in Newcastle and I, I, I love it to bits, I think... Well, it's, it's in a way, it's like... Um, the way in which at the present time London and the South East sort of perceives itself, at least in terms of the political leadership, as, as being the whole country and, and resources uh, and so many other things are concentrated to a quite ridiculous extent. And that's true, uh, obviously, in the same way about the North East. And, and, and Paul Callaghan indicated just one example of that, which was the amount of cultural spend that is, is diverted from, from the Arts Council and other funders to institutions in Newcastle compared to Sunderland. And, I mean, it's completely out of scale with the, with the populations of both of those cities. So, um, so I, you know, I, I would acknowledge what, what you say. Um, is that Fred Robinson I can see at the back there? Hi, Fred. Hello. Um, I think one kind of aspect of balkanisation, if you like, is a geographical one, and you've talked about that, and, and indeed a cultural one involving football and so on and so forth. But there's also, I suppose, and you made reference to this very passingly, um, increasing inequality. And I wonder to what extent that affected your ruminations, really, about the way in which the, the region uh, has changed and developed. In your father's book, there's relatively little reference to inequality, no reference to class, for instance, and a kind of sense of, uh, of coherence all in it together, which you don't get really so much these days in terms of people's uh, occupation. So I wonder, as you were going, walking across the region, to what extent did you have a sense of uh, people in it together in terms of a class politics, if you like, or people uh, very separate and perhaps more concerned with themselves and their own particular uh, position and interests in a very unequal society. Thank you, Fred. Um, Tony was to stop academics coming in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a good, it's a good question, and, and I, I, I would answer it by saying that my... I mean, obviously, I only did six walks in, in, you know, in, a, in a big place, so all of this is pretty subjective. And tentative, um, but it was my impression that my overall sense was the latter rather than the former, um, um, and, and it's part of that um, sense that I had of, of of places and communities sort of looking to their own resources and 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 turning in on themselves to some extent. Um, I did I did have an experience. Um, uh, some months ago, before I did the walks, um, I was spending some time in, in South Shields one morning, um, and 
and then in the afternoon, I took the train to London. I went for a meeting at Canary Wharf. Um, and, and the contrast between those, those places was... I mean, I kind of knew it intellectually, of course, but when you feel it within a period of a few hours, it, it was you know, just, you know, what kind of country are, are, we, li are we living in, you know? The, um, it, it wasn't... It wasn't, it wasn't even a sense that, as you, you might expect, you know, these two places are not in the same country. You know, it, it was bigger than that, the, the, the contrast. Um, and, um, and I think when, when places are, are under pressure, that kind of economic pressure, and there's a, there's a lot of evidence of poverty, frankly, in, in many parts of, of the region, and, and there's a very graphic description of, of it by Mark Robinson when we did the walk in Teesside. Um, there, there is perhaps a human tendency to, to sort of look in and, and try and address these issues um, by one's own efforts. And perhaps that's a reflection of, well, no one else out there is interested anyway, you know, in terms of government, that is. And there might be, you know, there might conceivably be some truth in that. Um, I mean, I happen to think that, um, on the whole, since 1951, we've been pretty badly governed, um, with you know certain exceptions. But um, but nailing my political colours to the mast, I think this lot takes some beating, um, <laughs> because by and large, it seems to me. I mean, I've just read uh, David Canaston's latest post-war history, and the impression of how government was conducted in Harold Macmillan's government mm. in the early 60s was, you can describe it in one word, bumbledom, mm. you know, they just didn't have a clue. Um, but I think that's not an excuse for this law. I think a lot of what they're doing is just because they, they, they have an agenda and they don't care. Um, so uh, that's a rather bleak response. But uh, Actually, there were probably less Aldertonians in Macmillan's government. Yeah, I'm than sure one. they were. Anyway, sorry, that was, that was yeah. a cheap shot. Any, hiya, sir, at the back there. Casting aside the political element of the last 50-odd years, given that in 1951, Furry Hill, the three mines there, employed close on 5,000 men, many of whom in the intervening years have been spread right across the country, does this in any way dilute the industrial cohesion? Well, it, it is a good question. Um, well, obviously, the, the pattern of industry is very, very, very different. And as you know yourself, Tim, there's very little employment per se in Ferry Hill. And, uh, and, and Sid foresaw that there was going to be a massive problem when the coal either gave out or it became uneconomic or, or a government decided unilaterally to shut it down for political reasons. Um, uh, but actually what I found when I came to Ferry Hill is that, you know, the, the invention of the motor car and its increasing accessibility made it possible for people to travel, as you know, some distance in, in, search, in search of work. Um, and it is possible to get too hung up uh, about um, the loss of heavy industry. In any case, it's slightly academic because it's happened and we have to get on with the world as we find it, not necessarily how we would like it to be. Um, and one of the things that I did talk about in terms of 
one of the things that has, has made the, the region uh, distinctive in a way that it wasn't in 1951 was the creation of the so-called creative industries um, and the fact that many people, uh, including myself, make a living uh, from activities which simply weren't around or available in 1951. Uh, I mean, my dad uh, was a part-time writer virtually all his life until he took early retirement. But there's lots of people around who are making a contribution and also contributing to the distinctiveness of the region to the outside world, you know, from Sting to Kevin Waitley to uh, Alistair Anderson. Um, so I think that's something that should be acknowledged and actually celebrated because it's a lot, lot of the work that results is completely brilliant. I hope that goes some way to answering that. Probably got time for one. Any? I guess so, yeah. Well, I'm sorry you found it slightly downbeat. We, you know, I was responding to the to the questions that that people raised quite quite properly. Um, I, I think, um, and there'll be a reference to this in my, in my last reading. Um, I mean, I am a natural optimist, and but I think I did have grounds for optimism about the future of the River Tyne, for instance, by comparison to um, much of the doom and gloom that's been. Uh, uh, spread about it since uh, the 1990s um, and I did see a hell of a lot to be um, surprised by and hopeful about mm. uh, and, and the Sunderland Walk I think in particular was a, was a fantastic example of that and I didn't expect to find it um, and I, I do think that there's a, there is a, a great deal of um, stuff going on in the region that is very positive and very hopeful. Uh, and I came away, I suppose, feeling that, but also feeling at quite a fundamental level that the, the biggest asset of the region is simply its people. Um, and, you know, I felt that in place after place after place, which is what I also felt on the, on the time walk as well. Um, you know, people who... Well, I'll talk about it again in, in the reading. So I think that that's the thing that makes me positive without necessarily being op optimistic. So I hope that answers your question. You. So, so, final question is that will, will, will one of the chapters revisit this in 17 years? Blimey. <laughs> Are you offering? Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be very nice to think that, that they did. I mean, it, you know, it has, it's been a real sort of privilege. Um, and, and the thing that I'm are we going to go in and I'm going to do the reading now? Do you want me, or do you want to take another question? Sorry, I'm taking over your role here. But, um. <laughs>
just like being at home. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so sorry, you'll pay sorry for my that. wife is here, can I just say. Um, no, we'll have the reading. Yeah. So you can yeah. pick up an issue. Yeah. There. Well, uh, yeah. the last thing that I should say is that, um, as I said at the beginning, that I did hope that I might discover something new about my dad that I didn't know. Mm. Um, but I rather doubted that I would because, obviously, I'm his son um, and I'm also his literary executor. So I have spent quite a lot of time in my life re reading unpublished stuff and reading letters and notebooks and all the rest of it. I didn't, um, but, but in the end, I did. Um, and that's what I'm going to yeah. sort of read about now. So Mike was going to end by on a very personal note, and I think it's just worth saying before you start, since I'm standing here, um, the 1950-51 painting of, um, of Sid uh, by the great Norman Cornish, who obviously passed away recently, so it's, it's, it's lovely to see uh, the painting which I'm standing over. So I'll leave it there. Um, he, he's reading A History of Spennymoor, by the way. If you... <laughs> that well-known publication. <laughs> so... Um, uh, the last, the second reading is, is the very end of the walk from Ferry Hill to, uh, to Durham City, and, and it's the day of the miners' uh, gala, um, which was a sort of God-given gift that the month that I did it was the month of the gala. Um, so I, I stayed the previous night uh, in the Manor House Hotel in Ferry Hill, and I got up very early, and I had an egg sandwich, and then I walked to Durham. And as I walk, I, I ruminate on some of the things that we've been talking about. But this last thing um, is really about my dad. And if I start bubbling, please excuse me. It's a good, good northeast word, that. Bubbling. Bubbling. Yeah. I mean, used to use that at school. <laughs> Stop bubbling, man. <laughs> okay. I passed through Shincliffe and stopped by Maiden Castle. There, sipping tea by the limpid weir, I hear the music of distant brass bands taking part in the miners' gala. Those ghostly strains seem to echo down the years for me, summoning up memories of my long-dead minor forefathers, my dad among them, and their strong women. This, taught, this journey has taught me something fresh about Sid too. A couple of years ago, after the death of my mother, I finally sorted through the long, undisturbed contents of my father's desk. Among them, I found a small brass disc with worn leather strap, the number 2165 and the word Datton punched into the metal, a token handed to a miner when he went underground, Datton being the name of the Shilden pit where my grandfather Ike once worked. I also found a gold leaf cigarette packet containing stones picked from the garden of Tolstoy's house, which my parents visited in the early 60s the great man being a literary hero of Sid's. In fact, he bought a second-hand copy of Resurrection when he was nine years old. That's very impressive to me. <laughs> I don't know whether he read it, but then he, <laughs> he bought it. Of course, I kept these mementos partly because they sum up the twin poles of my father's existence, the world of the pit village, which made him and his sensibility, and the world of literature to which he aspired from an early age. Sometimes these worlds were in alignment, as when, at the start of his writing career, he wrote short stories and poems about pit life, and sometimes they weren't. Like most young people, he had an urge to break away, explore new worlds and experiences. That was the pull. There was also the push. Consider the unremitting bleakness 
of his 1951 account of a Durham pit village, probably Ferry Hill. Smokestacks pour out a bilious reprisal of black, brown and yellow. The hawthorn hedges might have been cast in iron. Black, desolate mountains of waste cut, cut the skyline, and from the wrinkled slopes, tufts of smoke are evidence of the fires inside. A mean and miserable architecture repeats itself. Jumbled streets like tapeworms affront the eye. The homes of miners pitched impermanently on the heaving, ravaged earth. As a young man, Sid made many attempts to escape the pit and Ferry Hill. The first in 1939, when he went to Fircroft College for working men to study English and economics. Scuppered when war broke out and the college shut down. After the war, seeking jobs for himself and Reaney as handyman and housekeeper at Wallington Hall. Scuppered when it was made clear the family wouldn't have a sitting room to themselves and Reaney refused to go. Leaving the pit in 1946 after winning the Atlantic Award for Literature with his first book, The Leaping Lad, to become a full-time writer. Scuppered when the £300 prize money ran out. Then he ran into a wall with the next book and was thus obliged to return to Dean and Chapter. A pit with such a poor safety record, it was locally known as the butcher's shop. A fastidious man, the filth and indignity of pit life as well as its dangers affected him. As a union official, he once threatened a strike in protest at the dirty cutlery in the pit canteen and often took my brother Chris to shower in the pit baths as a change from tin baths and tepid water. Finally, Sid got his chance to escape. A job as a journalist on the NCB's newspaper, Cole, based in room 561 Hobart House, Buckingham Palace Road, with a salary of £750. A dream fulfilled. I plunge into the crowds on Durham's old racecourse, the banners of long dead pits lining its perimeter. I swim against the tide of the profession of bands towards the cathedral. The Chopwell banner celebrates Marx, Lenin and Keir Hardy, while the Ferry Hill town band stop outside the county hotel to play the Dean Martin tune Sway to the watching dignitaries. By Elvett's steps, the second Rossendale Bake-Up Scouts band give a tremendous rendition of YMCA, and large bonny women in gaudy frocks sing along, their arms gyrating the song's hand signals, while their bald, extravagantly tattooed menfolk sit silently, pints in hand. <laughs> the banners sway along the narrow streets. Their art may be negligible, wrote Sid, but their combined effect is hypnotic. Once I made this journey perched on his shoulders, Today I leave the crush and walk up Sadler Street to my destination. Sid began work in London on the 1st of January 1950. Not long afterwards, he was asked to write The Lakes to Tyneside. He accepted the commission, researched it during visits home, and wrote it at night in his shared flat in Albert Hall Mansions, which wasn't as grand as it sounds. When I read it now, I admire the taut prose and feel its underlying emotion. There's such evident love and longing there, I get a vivid sense that my father had already decided he must return. Indeed he did, to Newcastle in 1957, where his writing career really began to fly. He wrote no fiction in London, just as I returned 49 years later. 
Up the cobbled lanes I go to the heart of Durham City, a place that's simultaneously in County Durham, but not of it, and cross Palace Green. Inside the cathedral, it's cool and quiet. I make my way past the miners' memorial, candles fluttering, to the back of the altar and a small chapel with a great stone slab, under it the incorruptible body of the saint. A long walk from Lindisfarne, Cuthbert's last resting place. A final lesson. In these days of endless austerity, growing inequality, and remote and maladroit government, it is easy to be pessimistic about the future of this country, perhaps especially our corner of it. But I've come to believe this is a kind of betrayal of the past and the values of our forefathers and mothers. It seems to me that they, in so many ways poorer than my fortunate generation, nurtured a quiet belief in a better future for their bands, and just as important, worked and struggled in the face of great difficulties to bring it about. If they never gave up hope, how can we? Consider this, then, to be a small personal rallying cry to someone who, as a journalist and writer, has tended to observe rather than participate in the political hurly-burly. Stir yourself. I have loved making this pilgrimage in six flawless days of high summer. It's been a privilege to meet so many people who know and love their patch of the North Country, an even greater privilege to live and work in it. Whatever the challenges, I like to think the Northeast will meet them. Finally, it's been special to follow thus in my father's footsteps. A voice not heard in the flesh in 28 years has spoken to me once again. I touch the stone of Cuthbert's shrine and walk out into the sunshine and the music of my people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.